Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is, and has been since we started over 260 episodes ago, the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything they want from any time in their life, of any size and any nature, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor. Lorelai King. Lorelai is one of the most successful and accomplished American actresses working in the UK today. She's appeared in numerous films and TV shows, including Alien Covenant, Notting Hill, The Saint, Cold Feet, Jam, Birds of a Feather, Chef, Alistair McGowan's Big Impression, Emmerdale, Jonathan Creek, Not Going Out, The Robinsons, and Monarch of the Glen. She's also, interestingly, various voices in the American version of Bob the Builder. Yes, she is. Lorelai was once described as the best-known American voice on Radio 4. She's recorded more than 200 programmes for the BBC, including the Marx Brothers tribute, Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, superhero audio movies including Superman, Batman and Judge Dredd, and classic American dramas such as East of Eden, Ethan Froome and A Thousand Acres. Lorelai is a multi-award winning narrator of audiobooks, and amongst many individual awards for her audio work, she was voted Best Narrator of the Year by Audible.com in 2011, but I think she's the best every year. Now, as well as reading, Lorelai directs and produces other audiobook narrators, most recently Richard Gere, uh, Dan Stevens reading Mitch Albom's The Timekeeper, and Robert Bathurst reading Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache series. She was one of the first inductees 
goes into the Audible Narrator Hall of Fame. But that's just her career. What about Lorelei's life? How did she end up living in the UK? And what has she done apart from acting? Well, I think we'll find most of that out by discovering the five things from her life that she'd like to put into a time capsule. So let's get straight to it. Here is the wonderful actor, Lorelei King. It's lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for ages. I haven't seen you for a very long time. No. I, I don't even know. I mean, years. It, it will be years. It is years. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when we saw each other regularly. Yeah, I think part of that is the, the industry changing, isn't it? We all used to get together for, oh, I don't know, dubbing and ELTs and all kinds of group voice mm. work. And, and that doesn't seem to happen the same way anymore. No, I don't think there are the budgets available, mm-hmm. unfortunately. that you know, Very rarely do you find yourself in a room with a lot of actors. No, it's pretty rare. Well, I'm really interested to find out the things you've been trolling back through your life and thinking about this. I kind of knew pretty much what I wanted straight out of the box. It wasn't hard to think of things. Oh, that's good. I mean, I did think. You do have to reflect because it's like, oh, you don't want to take the first thing Mm. that comes to you. But anyway, I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Lovely. All right. Well, let's do it. Okay. Let's do it to it. Let's let's launch into it. Okay, Lorelai, what's your first thing? My first thing is uh, the most precious thing on my list, and that is my, um, my wedding ring, because it came from my grandmother, uh, so, which means it's quite old. It must be almost 100 years old. And my, my grandparents came, like, like much of America at that time, they were immigrants. Mm. They came from Eastern Europe uh, to, to America, to Pennsylvania, where I was born. And my grandpa worked in the steel mill there, which was quite typical of uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe. Mm. And... I've kind of gone down this Ancestry.com hole, <laughs> and I know the family story about my grandparents' marriage, but the documents sometimes are slightly different, and I, supp- I think I know why. It's because I always was told my grandma, she was 15 when she married my grandpa, right? Who, who was quite a bit older. He was a friend of her father's. It wasn't an arranged marriage, but I think you know, a family-introduced marriage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when I find the documents, they say she's older. And then I thought, oh, maybe that was even back then, because it's quite a long time ago. Maybe even back then, it wasn't quite acceptable that such a young girl. Oh, right. Yeah, maybe 15 was slightly too young. Yes. That little bit too young. Like somebody say 17. And anyway, but they had a very, very happy marriage. Mm-hmm. They were married for, gosh, I think, I don't know, 70 years. And it reminds me of, of that time, because where I grew up, everybody was immigrants everyone's parents or grandparents had an accent mm. in my neighborhood. There was mostly Eastern Europe, uh, some Italians. So it makes me kind of remember that time and that, that family history. Mm-hmm. And when they died, I got grandma's wedding ring and my cousin got grandpa's wedding ring. <laughs> so when it came time for me to be married, I wanted that ring. I wanted to use both the rings. Mm. Yeah, my parents were divorced, but their marriage lasted a long time, as I say, 70 years. So the ring was kind of, it wasn't just a memento, it was kind of a, a talisman. Yeah. And I really wanted Vince, my husband Vince, to have grandpa's ring. Hmm. So the negotiations started. <laughs> it, 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 it's just crazy, I think, because <laughs> my cousin, she said she wanted the ring for, she had three boys. I understand for them to use at their wedding, but my uncle George stepped in and offered a ruby ring of his. And so I got grandpa's ring. <laughs> but my cousin, she's so funny. I think she was pure of heart. She sent it to London from Alabama, where she was a sheep farmer. And on the outside, she wrote gold ring. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so I was, I was kind of amazed that it that it even got here. But um, wow, how trustworthy I are know. all those people? When was that though? So that would have been quite a while ago. That would have been 
Well, then, well, I was married in 96, so I think the negotiations right, yeah. started there probably in 95. Mm-hmm. So I got the rings. But it, it wasn't just the rings. It was like I wanted every detail of that wedding to be perfect. Yeah. And we were, that, we were that bit older when we got married, and Vince and I were both raised Catholic, so we really wanted that sacrament of marriage. Mm. I think it's at times like that those roots really run deep. Yeah, and so we and we were married. In fact, at the most beautiful church in London. I don't know if you know it, St Ethelreda's, which is near Chancery Lane. Oh wow! Yes, I do know it. It's beautiful. I think it is. It's the oldest consistently Catholic church in this country, I believe. Right. So it wouldn't be fair to say I was a bridezilla, but <laughs> I did become. We were talking earlier privately about being a control freak, and I just was like a control freak about everything with that wedding. (laughs) And I think the most memorable was when we went to talk to the priest, because all Catholic couples, when they get married, have to have a consultation with the priest Mm -hmm. who talks to them about married life. I mean, we were all laughing because it was really for form's sake with us because we were so ancient. (laughs) But Father Kid, he gave it his best shot, you know, telling us what marriage means and uh, the importance of compromise. And when he finished, he said, um, so do you have any questions? And there was a pause. And then I said, um, yes, I do. <laughs> and I took a swatch of my wedding dress fabric out. And I said, do you have any vestments that will go with this? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Vince. Vince's head hit the table. But, but Mike, the choir master had given me the heads up that there were these very beautiful old vestments that were historical to the church. And I was angling mm. for those. Uh, yes. And I got them. <laughs> and, um, um, I want roughs. I want everything. Well, yeah, they were they were gold. My my dress was gold, and it just matched. So that was. So I was glad. You don't ask, you don't get, right? Yeah. No. No. It's a very good method. Although those rings, mm. if they were that old, do you mind if I ask what drove your grandparents to leave Eastern Europe and come to America? They did not leave together. They. My grandmother was already in America. She came, as I imagine, as a child. And it's interesting you ask that because that's a bit of a family mystery. My grandpa, whom I adored, he was very cagey. He changed his name mm-hmm. to King, which, you know, is, he was Serbian. It was not a Serbian name. And he would never tell us. I remember when on his deathbed, I went to see him and I, I thought, I just want to know our name. And I was like, Grandpa, please, please tell me our name. What you mean, was King? And, um, <laughs> and, so we never really knew what it was. No. Some people said, oh, his father had done something bad in the old country and I don't know, stole a sheep. I don't know what. But so we never really knew. But there was an enormous number of people who came. All my grandparents came over. Mm-hmm. In fact, my grandfather on my father's side and my grandmother on my mother's side came on the same ship, not at the same time, but the same ship. I learned. Mm. I think they the rings were bought in America. As I say, they were in America when they married. Mm. They're very, uh, the gold is of, it's a beautiful color. It's very simple. It's a very slim gold band. And Vince's was thicker, but also very, very plain. But they, I love them because, well, also because I love my grandparents. It's, well, you're a grandpa now, aren't you? <laughs> I am a grandpa now. Yeah. And it's the best relationship for me, I, I didn't know my maternal grandparents because they died when I was a baby, but I loved my grandparents so much. And I think one of one of my regrets, um, one of my only regrets really with not having had children is that I won't be a grandmother because I don't know how good a mother I would have been, but I would have been a spectacular <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm kind of sorry not to have had that chance. Yeah, no, I, it is a... It is a blessing. It's not easy. Mm. There's a lot of work involved in it. Yes. But, but of course, 
I'm sure the reason that young people adore their grandparents is because as you get older, you really, really appreciate young children much more. You have more time for them. And in fact, when you have them, that's it. They're there. You're looking after them. There's nothing else that gets in the way. So you have this mm-hmm. this really intimate relationship with them. It is. And it's not the, you know, there's, there's always baggage with parents. I, I, there's always stuff going on that's quite complex and and it's mm. it just feels a more pure at least in my case it felt a more pure kind of relationship yeah and bringing me back to the rings i think it's it also represented what they were coming to the new country to to better themselves so i took um i also took strength from those rings and what they represented later on yeah because in a way you did the same thing you've left america yes i did i know i'm i come back um yeah but when the meaning of the vows that we took at the altar, when we both put on those rings, uh, became significant when, when Vince became ill, um, first with cancer and then with Alzheimer's. Mm. And I remember uh, once we were at the hospital going through some ghastly part of his treatment, his cancer treatment, and he, he was in so much pain and he said something like, um, you know, why do you, why do you stay? Because I was by his side all the time. And, mm. and I remember very clearly holding this ring up to his face and saying, what do you think this means? And, and he touched his own ring. Oh, I get a bit emotional about this, but I mean, any, any rings that we had used would have represented those, those vows we took, but there was just something about the fact that they came from my grandparents that gave me that, that extra boost Mm -hmm. because it reminded me of that connection. And and about the people I, I come from. Yes. And I, I still wear the ring, as you can see, even though uh, Vince, my husband, died of COVID in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. But, And I know technically they say that means you're not still married, but I still feel married. So I still wear the ring. Yes. You wouldn't think of your grandparents as not married. Abs- you know, I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right, of course. No, I think that is when you say it's a commitment I love the idea of it being a commitment for eternity. Mm-hmm. That's it. We were married. We are married. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, and the vows, I think when you face difficulties in your life, it the true significance of the vows is revealed. And I think it's it's a privilege to be able to live those vows. And it's a test for sure. But it shows the importance of the vows. It's not just a, a day with a pretty dress and a cake and all that. It's... It's deeply significant. And older boys in gold, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you should make it as nice as you can, but it, it, isn't, it isn't about that. I think you have to mean what you say at the altar or even in front of the registrar. I mean, yeah, they mean something, those words. Yeah, absolutely. That's why it's such a moving ceremony, I think, mm-hmm. to see particularly young people. I was very young when I got married. Were you? How old yeah. were you, Mike? I was 23, my wife oh. was 21. And <gasps> Babies. Yes, we were. She was 19 when I met her. <laughs> and we got married two years later, and we've been together now 41 years. <gasps> Congratulations. That's mm. beautiful. But I'm on my fifth wedding ring. Are you, why? Uh, well, what are you doing to them? <laughs> I keep taking them off for plays, <gasps> but then find that they've gone missing. <gasps> Do you get in trouble? Well, the first one, I bet you got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, definitely. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> but 
mm, now my wife sees it as a good excuse for something to buy me for Christmas. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think she's probably got two or three in the cupboard, just in case. <laughs> she's got them stored. Well, what a lovely thing. Thank you for telling me about that. It's really moving. Thank you. Really gorgeous. And so that love and dedication is really clear in that ring. Yes, that's what I think. And thank you for saying that. Hmm. Lovely. Okay, well, I promise to look after it very carefully in the time capsule. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And so we move on to item number two. My item number two is is in a way connected. Um, It's a, a red wooden heart that I have with my husband's name, Vincent Marzello, and the date of his death. 31st of March, 2020. Uh, as I said, he died of COVID early in the pandemic. And yeah. I, it's hard to believe that that's less than three years ago. Yes, it is, isn't it? My word. Now you say it, it seems really strange. It feels longer ago. And to remember how ghastly it was and how... Uh, they say that COVID grief is different from other grief, and I absolutely believe it. It it was unusual. I mean, I was living alone when he died. I was alone, and I I had to grieve alone. Mm. Um, I lived alone, and we weren't allowed out that much. And, you know, friends, of course, friends are wonderful. They stay in touch by phone and email. But the lack of human contact for that whole time was ghastly, let alone you know, the difficulty of organizing a funeral and a burial during lockdown. Mm. Um, yeah. So it was incredibly lonely that first year. And just there's nothing to do but dwell and to live in this this grief. And then about a year later, in March of 2021, in fact, just a year later, the COVID Bereaved Families for Justice group started a project, they called it an art project, of painting red hearts on a wall of the South Bank directly across from the Houses of Parliament. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that they would paint one heart for every person in the UK who had, who had died with covid on their death certificate. So I went down, I felt compelled to paint a heart for Vince. And my item, my keepsake, my wooden heart, is an exact replica of that heart. Oh, wow. And it was made for me by my friend Catherine. She's going to hate that I named her. (laughs) Uh, She's she's more than a friend. She's a, a fellow volunteer at the UK COVID Memorial Ball. And we're a group of 10 women. We're all COVID bereaved. And once a week, we go down to the wall and we paint hearts and we restore hearts that have faded. And we do dedications for people who can't get to London you know, once a week in all weathers. Been pretty cold recently. <laughs> and, I, you know, Mike, when Vince died, I, I kind of, and I'm still a little bit here, you kind of don't know what, what is my life now. Of course, because he had been ill for about quite a few years before then. So mm. all of a sudden, I'm like, what is my life? And I sort of divided the activities of my life into three things. There were things that gave me pleasure. There were things that gave me satisfaction. And there were things that gave life meaning. And I think volunteering at the wall is something that gives my life meaning. Because the bereaved, they they share their stories with us online and also in person when they come to the wall. Mm. And these stories are heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. You know, 240 plus thousand People died of COVID and in this country and exponentially out the, the number of people affected by that. Mm. And I see that the grief is not like other grief. And also, I see why, why some of us still rage about things like Partygate. I'll call it Partygate as a no. kind of shorthand. Yes. And 
I know some people who perhaps have not been bereaved don't really understand why the rage is as red hot as it was for some of us. But it's because people are angry because those who obeyed the rules that were flouted so comprehensively by those who made those rules mm. and by those who enforced those rules. I don't know if you remember giving fines to people sitting 10 feet apart in a park because there was a sandwich on the bench or, or whatever. Yeah. Whereas Boris Johnson, mm. Dominic Cummings, mm -hmm. Angela Stratton laughing about how, as they strategized about pulling the wool over our eyes. And, and it's a very particular kind of rage because for us, there are no do-overs. Um, Vince died without me because I was staying away to keep him safe, as I'd been told to do. Oh, and during the pandemic, people lost so much. You know, they lost their businesses, um, weddings postponed. They couldn't see their families. They couldn't see their relatives with dementia. But some of those things can be remedied. You can start a new business. You can reschedule a wedding. But when someone dies, we can never fix it. You know, that moment is gone forever. It's final. And we missed that chance because we were doing what they asked us to do, but what they weren't willing to do themselves. Mm. And this is why I joined the COVID Bree Families for Justice group, mm. who were so instrumental in getting the COVID inquiry, which is ongoing. Mm. And we're now, thanks to the, uh, the justice group, we're now core participants in that inquiry. Good. And... People sometimes wonder, you know, what is the purpose? The purpose of it is to find answers and learn for the future for when something like this happens again. And this inquiry is important for everyone, not just for the bereaved, because it could help shape and improve how we deal with this in the future. Yes. With a future pandemic, with a war, with, I don't know, a natural disaster. I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the fact is that a lot of us have paid a very high price for those lessons. Our lost loved ones paid the highest price. And I think it would be a sin for this government, for the COVID inquiry to squander those lessons that cost us so dearly, to not take testimony from those most affected by the pandemic and the actions of this government, and to marginalize us in this inquiry. Mm. And yes, it, the inquiry, it's not about blame. It is about accountability, of course, but so that we can, through that accountability, that we can learn. I mean, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. And I know others feel the same, other bereaved. And if our experiences can somehow inform in a positive way the, the future responses to a situation like this, that would, be, mm -hmm. that would be some comfort that might give some meaning to our, to our suffering. Yes, even if it's overreaction. The very fact that there was a delay of any form to what people did about COVID, particularly the government, sort of went, well, I don't think it's going to be as bad as they're predicting. So we'll keep things going. And, and that delay, just a matter of weeks, was vital. So even if that's just the one lesson they learned, but also, because I can see from the way you talk about it, that people realise that that insult, it wasn't just a piece of bad behaviour. It was a very personal insult to all those people who'd done the right thing. And it's, it must hurt like that. It must hurt like a slap in the face. It, it hurts that I didn't see him. Uh, I don't feel hurt by them. I feel angry. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is what I feel. But you're right. It was the biggest insult. And you know what? I, I wish I hadn't obeyed now. I wish I hadn't. But I did. Yeah. And I did it for the right reasons. I did it to keep him safe. 
Mm. And I cannot tell you how often that that plays in my mind night after night, that same film. And I try to make the outcome different every time. I think this is quite common when there's been a, a sudden death or a death like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what I find therapeutic and part of what helps me is is to go to the COVID memorial wall and, and paint hearts with the other volunteers. Yes. What we're doing is the original paint used has faded. It was the wrong kind of paint. And so now it's it's a massive project, like Fourth Bridge type project, where yeah. we're restoring all the hearts with proper masonry paint now that we use. And if you see hearts painted out with white, that will be because they are love hearts. People don't always know what the wall represents. Right. Or uh, graffiti. Wow. Because, yeah, uh, you'd be surprised how much graffiti there is. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Personally, I think it's... Uh, wonderful that you're doing this and I can see how how therapeutic and how important it will be for you to do it Mm. but I still don't understand why this has not been taken on as a national memorial well this is our next campaign uh, is to make the wall permanent and so it is ongoing Uh, there Mm -hmm. is a commission for COVID commemoration headed up by uh, Nikki Morgan and the commission have been to see us twice uh, once very recently and I think you know fingers crossed the feeling is generally positive. That's the vibe we get. Hmm. Because it is the most uh, kind of spontaneous outpouring, and it's a beautiful thing. It is. If anybody's not seen it, it's really moving. It is. If you haven't walked the wall, I mean, I highly recommend it. It can be overwhelming the first time you see it. It's it's very high, and it's half a kilometer long, running from uh, Westminster Bridge to Lambeth Bridge. The Archbishop of Canterbury came last year to walk the wall. And he put it beautifully. He was impressed by the height. And he said, it's, it was like a wave of grief breaking over us. So there's a lot to see down there. If you're visiting the South Bank or the London mm. Eye, the Houses of Parliament, and, you know, it's right yeah, there. You can wave across to all the politicians who didn't do what they should have done. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is right across. And if you turn your back to the wall, you have the most iconic view of the Houses of Parliament. Hmm. So I think the positioning of it was, was not a mistake. But my wooden heart, it's so it is a memento of of my beloved husband, but it's also a symbol of the friendships that I forged through this shared grief with my fellow volunteers. Mm -hmm. So it it's definitely something I want to keep. Yes. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. A symbol of the fact that you don't get over these things, but you can survive them. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fantastic. I won't go into any more of it because if I start talking about it, I'll start (laughs) shouting. Well, you'll be preaching to the choir. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Oh, Lorelei. Good Lord. Uh, We've only done two things and um, I'm exhausted (laughs) with the emotion of it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Let's move on to number three. Oh, number three. Well, the next thing I'd like to put in my time capsule is a kind of time capsule itself. It is my well-thumbed copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, cheating a bit, they're technically two books. I will super glue them together if I have to. I'm treating them (laughs) as one one edition. (laughs) But I I love these books. They're by my bedside. They've got all kinds of little stickers and markings and and things like that. And why, you may wonder. Um, Well, as a very mature adult, I decided to do a degree with the Open University. And at one point, I needed a class with a certain number of units, like a little class. Hmm. And I saw that they were offering one on Homer and the Homeric poems. You thought, I love the Simpsons. (laughs) Of course. Well, yeah, I knew that guy really well. Um, And like most people, I knew knew vaguely about 
the Homeric poems, I'd seen the reception of the stories in films like Jason and the Argonauts. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, those skeletons coming out of the know, ground. I know, the skeletons. <laughs> the late, great Ray Harryhausen. I mean, he was, he was made for those Homeric stories. So I sort of vaguely knew that, but I thought, eh, why not? It's, you know, it's kind of a literature degree course. So it has units I need. It's at a time that suits. And, and I think it was the last time they were offering it. So I thought, why not? Mm. But little did I know that it would like change the course of my degree. Doing that class, I thought, right, that's it, switching to classical studies. Because <laughs> I loved it so much. And I, I honestly don't know why it grabbed me so much. I mean, they're, they're fantastic stories. And, and you know, as human beings, we're hungry for stories and, and a range of stories and the fantastical creatures and love and revenge, big themes. Mm. And I, I think it's, do you know, if you do a close reading of anything, Maybe you become fascinated by it if you study something very closely. Maybe that's the the key. Maybe, yeah. But I mean, I've, I've always found, particularly with those big classical themes, and I think that's probably why fantasy and those sort of worlds work as well, mm -hmm. in the sense that it's the humanity, it's the small human things within those things that make them live. Yes. No, you're right. And, and we all uh, find something to identify with. I think in that way, of these two poems, the, the Odyssey is considered to be more popular because it has those fantastical stories, the Cyclops and the Sirens. Mm. But to my surprise, because the Iliad tells a story, a part of the war, the Trojan War, and the Odyssey is the study of a journey, Odysseus's journey home. But to my surprise, I preferred the Iliad, which is a war story. And it's like, really? But mm -hmm. honestly, there were times when my heart would be pounding like I was watching some action film as I was reading. It was just, <laughs> it was just incredible. But the studying of those poems led me to study ancient Greek. I mean, part of that was required when I switched my degree, but right. the true motivation was that I really longed to read some of it in the original, well, the original, in Greek. Uh, mm -hmm. It was an oral poem. I think it was probably first written in the 7th or 8th centuries BC, they say. And it's a bit silly because at that time it would have been a different kind of Greek, Ionic Greek. And like everyone else, I studied classical Greek, which is mm -hmm. Attic, 5th century. But I wanted to do it. So I studied the Greek and then I fell in love with ancient Greek. I had to do both Greek and Latin for my degree. And I, I, I kind of had a uh, as a Catholic of a certain age, I had a certain amount of church Latin under my belt. Yeah. But I didn't really like the Latin. I found it more um, clinical. I, I can't explain it. Or more, I don't know, prim in a way, but Greek. I loved the alphabet for a start. It was so beautiful. And the language itself just seemed more, more wild and, I don't know, artistic. And <laughs> early in the, my study of Greek, there was this one moment when I was at our wonderful British Museum, looking at Greek things, because they have a bunch of them. And <laughs> I came across this... More than Greece, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. They've got yeah. all sorts. I was focused on the Greeks, and I came across this pot. And it wasn't a beautifully painted Greek pot. It was, it was quite crude, but it had these words scratched into it equally crudely. And I could read it. It said, so-and-so made me. And I, I just... <laughs> I just burst into tears because oh, wow. I just felt I'd been spoken to by a potter from 2000, what, 2,500 years ago who yeah. scratched this little message into his pot. And it was just so, so moving. Mm -hmm. um, and I think studying an ancient language, it isn't exactly communication because it's a one-way street, but it does give you a kind of contact and an insight 
into people from the past. And I know people say, oh, they call them dead languages. You know, they're not. Uh, having even a bit of an ancient language is in that way a, a kind of time machine, mm -hmm. I think, which is, I think is appropriate for a time capsule. You know? um, <laughs> I love the idea of those things, that sudden connection with the past. Mm -hmm. I was in a museum in Cyprus, and there are so many things scattered all over Cyprus that they treat them with almost with disdain because they're so used to them. And we went in and there was a huge urn with circular markings all the way around it from the top to the bottom. And the guard, we stood there reverently looking at it. And the guard said, it's very, very old, I think 5,000 BC. He said, it's, you see, one man, very skillful. This is his fingers from the top. Oh. All the way around, all the way, all to the bottom, one go. Wow. And I looked at it, and of course, that's exactly what it is. <gasps> you can almost see the nail marks. Yeah. And he said, put your fingers in, go around. <gasps> and I said, oh, no, I can't, possibly. And he said, no, no, good, you must, you must. Then you, then you, you touch this man's hand. Wow. And, oh, my God, it was <gasps> thrilling. So did you do it? You put I your did, fingers in? I did, of course, wow. yeah. What I love about that story, too, is that I, I just love how accessible these items are. I know it's you have to balance that with their fragility and preserving mm -hmm. them, but how amazing to have the chance to touch. Amazing. He was the guard, yeah. and it was his job to look after the place, but he was encouraging, do it, yeah. do it. This is your chance. Yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> it really was cool. Honestly, <gasps> it was one of the most thrilling things I think I've ever done. Mm -hmm. I was on a high for the rest of the day. I couldn't stop talking about it. I'm kind of there. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it, and mm. I'm a little bit jealous. Well, but that very thing of looking at that vase and going, I know what you've written. Yeah. And I thought, how, and with my pot and with your pot, it's like those people who made them, it, I'm sure they never would imagine the world we live in. No. And that someday people from so many thousands of years later would be going, wow. 7,000 years, 7,000 years. Yeah, you Amazing. certainly hit the jackpot there. Yeah. God, how wonderful. Yeah. And, and I can see absolutely, if I had any dedication in my life at all to anything, Laura and I, which I don't. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea of sitting down and studying those things, I really admire it. And I think, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do that. But I won't. Well, you have to love it. It wasn't a hardship with the Greek, but now that a lot has been blown out of my head in the last few years, it's kind of, I guess they call it rusty or it's lapsed. And I think, no, I got to get my Greek back and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get the books. Well, I did get the books out and it stopped there, but it's definitely on my uh, endless to-do list <laughs> to um, get back to my Greek because I do. Sometimes I still do pick up a bit and read and read a little bit out loud, but I, it's hard to understand. You, you lose the fluency if you don't use it. So. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I would love to get back to it. But I'm a terrible linguist anyway. I'm useless at it. I once spent three weeks in Greece on a lovely island called Paxos. Yes. And uh, at the time, you could only get there on a slow boat. They now have very fast boats, so it's quite common for people to go there, but it wasn't when we stayed there, the only people who were allowed to have motor vehicles, what do I describe it? Motor vehicles. How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> were the people who lived there. So there were very few. So we walked a lot and we stayed in a villa up in, in the hills mm. and we'd walk down every day to get bread. Now, as we walked down, I would greet people with my wonderful newly discovered skills in Greek. And eventually, after two weeks, my wife and children stopped giggling at me from behind my back. And my wife said, do you know what the word for good morning is? And I said, yeah, I've been saying it to everybody for two weeks. And she said, yeah, no, you've been saying squid. 
<laughs> You've been saying calamari, whereas it, oh, no. in fact it's calimera. Oh, that is adorable. I bet that's a mistake a lot of people make. Well, I like being the squid man. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Your English is coming along. <laughs> so we can say that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> okay, well, let's put Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey in there as one volume. Thank you. You're very welcome. Lovely. That's three things. So we have two left. One do you want to keep and one do you want to forget? Yes. Right, apologies. I know this can be annoying, but we have to interrupt my time capsule in order to create a space for some adverts. But have no fear, we will return forthwith, or even third with, if there are only a few ads. Whatever happens, we'll be back as soon as we can. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. As the private doctor said to the ambulance driver, who kept delivering people to him rather than the NHS hospital he was supposed to deliver them to, thanks for your patience. Yes, I know it's terrible. Never mind, let's hurry back to the wonderful Lorelei King and find out what else she wants to put in her time capsule. The last item I want to keep is not related to time travel, but to travel. Uh, and it's my passport. Mm. Because my passport changed my life. Not because I'm a big traveler or anything. I'm not. I actually hate traveling. I, I don't mind being new places. I just hate the process of traveling. But I got my first passport, and the first time I decided to travel, it changed the course of my life forever. Mm. I decided to go to Europe. Was that just for a holiday? or? Well, sort of. It were a tour. I don't know what. I was going for a, a length of time, some months. Uh, mm. I had family in Yugoslavia, my aunt and uncle, and I was going to stay with them. And on the way, I hit London and Paris and Serbia, and then got to, oh, I can't call it Mass. It was the Republic of Macedonia. Now it's called North Macedonia, mm -hmm. uh, where I was staying with my aunt and uncle for a couple of months in the mountains mm -hmm. in winter <laughs> with little in the way of indoor plumbing. Um, <laughs> but I absolutely loved it. It was 
things things change. At, at that point, I was in my very early 20s, I guess. And I'd been a vegetarian for some years uh, since I was a teen. But I stopped being a vegetarian there because in winter, there was like not much else to eat. Mm-hmm. It's everything's dried. They had this way of keeping apples and carrots in sawdust, so you could have that. But I was I was from California at that point. It was like I, there was nothing green. And I remember one of my neighbors drove me to Ohid, which is on the a lake, and because his grandma had a greenhouse, and she gave me a lettuce. This lettuce was like gold, and I wouldn't share. <laughs> I ate that lettuce myself. It was fantastic. Once I was so desperate, I went out in the in the yard, in the garden, and dug through the snow and hacked up this frozen cabbage that had been growing there. I was just so <laughs> desperate for vegetables. And also, they treated meat very differently there from how we do. They raise an animal, they slaughter it, and they use every bit of it. Mm. So you see its critters eat critters. You sort of see the natural cycle of things. So um, that changed something about me. And it was great to spend time with my aunt. She was actually my great aunt who had lived in America. They both had lived in America. And she was, so she was very modern and she was very funny. And she was also a bit of a loose cannon. (laughs) You never knew what would happen. She always kept you slightly unsteady. And we, we had this adventure where as the snows were coming, we were tasked with buying some supplies for the village. And to buy those supplies, we had to go to Greece, right. which was right next door, because they didn't have these things. You know, you know, Yugoslavia, as was, was uh, still communist. Mm-hmm. So my aunt had this big old Mercedes, and you know how big the trunk of the boot is, and there's a big square bit. So we were going to fill it up. And <laughs> I remember we were supposed to buy blankets and coffee and stuff. So we're headed to the border, and my aunt says to me, oh, honey, I, I don't have a passport. And I'm like, What? <laughs> and she said, I, oh, I hope it's not going to be a problem. My passport expired. And I'm like, oh, my God, how are we going to get into Greece? And she's like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and, but she was, she had the luck of the devil because we got to, uh, we we're approaching the Yugoslav border and a Greek soldier was standing there and he stopped us. He was armed. He stopped us and gestured and opened the back door of the car and got in the back seat. And my aunt was like, she just said to me under her breath, she's like, smile and don't say anything. So I did. He didn't speak Macedonian or English and uh, we didn't speak Greek. And so we just drove him. But it got us through, you know, we sailed through, obviously, the Yugoslav side, but it got us through the Greek border. We didn't have to be checked. So, I mean, again, it's like the luck of the devil. So we're in Greece. He gets out. He taps her on the shoulder at some point. He gets out. We go into... uh I think it was Thessaloniki. I think that was the town. And mm. had lunch, and we bought all these things, all the blankets and the coffee, and I can't remember what else. And we crammed everything into the boot of the car, and we drove back. Now, for the first time, my aunt is looking nervous. <laughs> and she's like, she's white. She's like candle grease, you know, that look, that slightly sick look she has. And, and she's saying, oh, my heart, I've got palpitations. And I'm like, oh, great, now. <laughs> So we get to the Greek border and they just wave us through. That's, I, I think they don't care so much if you're leaving. But we get to the Yugoslav border and she's telling me, she says, the thing is, if they find this stuff, we're going to have to pay a tax on it. Hmm. And the tax was, I mean, it was one of those really crazy taxes, like 100% or something. It was like, and we yeah. didn't, we couldn't pay that. So <laughs> now I'm going, oh my God, I'm going to be in jail. I'm in a communist country. What's go-? so, you need to find a Yugoslavian soldier. 
Oh, well, <laughs> happily. No. The, well, the Yugoslav soldier at the border comes, my aunt goes, oh, thank God he went to school with your cousin, Sane. <laughs> Again, the luck of the devil. So, but still, we're not out of the woods, but at least no. we have a connection. So he comes over, very charming, very handsome, very nice looking man in that part of the world. And he's chatting with my aunt and it's like, oh, I hear your niece is here visiting. And Tata Sally's like, oh, yes, she's here. And he's like, oh, that's wonderful. Will you get out of the car, please? So we get out of the car, go to back to the boot. And he said, and have you had a nice time? And I'm smiling, like, for all I'm worth and going, oh, yes, lovely. And he's like to my aunt, will you open the, the boot, please? So she opens the boot and I have a, still this mental picture. One of the blankets we bought was bright red. It was really pretty. And I could just see that red blanket gleaming out on top of all this other stuff. <laughs> this soldier, he did not look, he kept his eyes in my aunt's eyes. So she's standing there with the, the boot open and he said, did you buy anything in Greece? <laughs> and she said, no, we just had lunch. And he said, that's lovely. Thank you. Close the trunk, please. <laughs> and she closed the trunk. I mean, so clearly. But Brilliant. you know what? I think, not that I'm like super informed, but I have a feeling that is how things worked in communist countries back. A, a little bit of ducking and diving went on. Who yeah, you know? Yeah. All that kind of thing. But we just got so lucky. And of course, we were heroes when we got back to the village because <laughs> we, course, we yes. got everything we set out to buy. Yeah. I mean, I love that world. I think that's the way the world should run. What, duck and dive? You should have people saying, well, I, well you know, that I know there are rules, but Clearly, they don't really work. So I'm only going to impose them if someone is really taking the mick. You anarchist. You've just went and got some stuff because you need it. That's okay. <laughs> I once went to France, and as we arrived at the passports, my daughter said, oh, oh I forgot my passport. Oh. We were at the entrance to the Eurotunnel, and uh, I went and spoke to the person and said, Look, we've come here, we're on the next train. And uh, my daughter's forgotten her passport. Is there some sort of form we could, we're we going for lunch? And he said, yeah, no, as long as the French let you through, it's okay with us. And true, we went. And then when we came back on the other side, my teenage daughter and my wife, who'd had lunch and I was driving, they were both off their faces, I have to say. <laughs> and we arrived and my wife said, I've got my passport, but she hasn't got one. <laughs> uh, my daughter had hysterics and the man went, yeah, yeah, go through. That was it. And did France let you in on the way in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, why not? We were going to go and spend money yeah. in France. Yeah. I'm kind of amazed that it still happens, that you can still... I'm not sure it does after Brexit. Oh, was this before Brexit? It was, yes. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder what it'd be like now. Mm. No, lots of forms to fill in. Yeah. Thinking about about my passport, and because I have two passports now, because I, I'm a dual citizen, I'm I'm British. Mm -hmm. um, and your grandparents did the same thing? Well, this is it. They came to America. You've got an aunt who went back and lived in yeah. Yugoslavia from America. This is a constantly moving and changing world. It is. Of people who are, who are willing to live in other countries and contribute to them. That's it. And I, I can't see the harm in it. No, I'm deeply sad that one of my passports you know, is no longer a gateway to living in Europe. Because as you just said, mm. I mean, I feel European. My family emigrated and I've gone the other way. I've come back to Europe. Yes. What made you settle on London? Well, so after I got back from that big trip with my family, I was restless when I got home and I thought, as you do when you're young, I'm going to go live in Europe. And I got like a one-way <laughs> ticket, $400 in my pocket. And I went and I was, I was heading for Paris or Belgrade, which were two cities that I liked very mm. much. But in those days, London was kind of where you flew to and then you branched off. 
So I was going to be here for three days, and um, here I am, 44 years later. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Proving you don't need to be an avid traveler to end up living abroad. You know, all you need is a passport. But well, that's a good choice, though, because what a life you've had. What a career you've had. It's true. And I, I do have a theory about Britain. It's like, I think if you are here long enough to have to start working, you can never earn enough to get out. So, <laughs> no, I tease. It's my home now. Yeah, lovely. Uh, fantastic. Well, I put that passport in there. Yeah. So our final thing is something you want to put in there because you'd like to forget it. Yes. Oh, God, after this conversation, of course, you think it might be Brexit. But it's not. It's something possibly worse. Bread sauce. Bread sauce is going in the bin Yep. in my time capsule. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm sort of with you on this. Oh, good. Uh, yes, no, I've had this discussion before. Mm-hmm. Every Christmas and Strangely, only Christmas. Yes. Yeah. My wife, you know, we need bread. We need stale bread. If it was so great, you'd be eating it year round, right? You would think so, wouldn't you? I, I'm glad to hear you say that because a Twitter poll recently, there was a Twitter poll, and I think it was um, that fantastic account. I think it's called Very British Problems. Mm-hmm. And they did a poll saying, oh, what would you get rid of from the Christmas dinner you know, lineup or whatever thing. And so I put bread sauce. Oh, my God. I came in <laughs> for – well, I did come in for some abuse. I, they take that very seriously. Um, and, <laughs> Were you told to go back home? Well, not quite that, but people just like <laughs> – I believe I was called, excuse me, a wanker at one point. Um, but, and, but mostly it was people insisting I just hadn't had it made properly ah, and yes. giving me recipes. And it's like, guys, please stop. I have tried it many times. To my credit, I have an open mind. I have had homemade bread sauce made by fantastic cooks. I've had store-bought. Mm-hmm. I've had all kinds. And I'm sorry, it's all just like wallpaper paste, sometimes with a hint <laughs> of clove. But I, yes. I honestly don't get it. No, first of all, I don't like the taste of clove. Oh, okay. And that sort of dominates it. But I had gluten-free bread sauce this Christmas. Wow. Um, yeah, it was equally as disgusting and pointless. I mean, I'm tempted to say, well, why don't we just put porridge all over our dinner? I could do that. I like porridge. Um, I'm just thinking about that. And I like cloves. I just don't like bread sauce. I, but I think it's one of those things when you're raised with it, because there was a lot of things in British cuisine that I had to adjust to when I came here in the 70s. Right. Yes, I'm sure the opposite would be true. If yeah. I lived in America, I'd go, yeah. do you really like pumpkin pie? Really? Oh, God, that's the best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but it's, oh, you won't like it because it's got too much clove in it. Yeah. But there were things like the double starch thing, mm. chip butties, and <laughs> the baked beans on toast. Or It, it was just strict. But, and also... You make some of your desserts with animal fat. Yeah. You know, suet. I, this to <laughs> me is the most bizarre thing. And I still, even though I've lived here so long and have tried it, I still cannot, I don't like it. I can't get used to it. No. Mincemeat? Do you like mincemeat? I mean, in, no. in the sense of the mincemeat. The fruit one. Yeah, no. Yeah. No, I don't like Christmas puddings. I don't like uh, mince pies. No. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's what... What you're raised with. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that I, well, sweet potatoes with marshmallows. You probably aren't going to like that. Yeah, it sounds as if I'm not. Yeah. Actually, I think thinking about it, no. And yet for me, that's the taste of Thanksgiving. And uh, it's what you're used to. Yes. But there, it was a big adjustment to this. <laughs> Speaking of food, when I first came here, I stayed in this. It was Oh, it was fantastic back in those days. It was like this big old Victorian house, really drafty. A friend lived there and I had, I got like a little bed sit there. And it was almost like communal living. It was very social. 
And I remember once we were, as you used to do before, so long before social media and all those kind of things, we talked to each other in person <laughs> and we would drink alcohol and we'd eat food and we'd talk. And, and at this one point we ran out of something, some kind of food, I guess. And it was, must've been late, like 10 o'clock. And I said, oh, well, we'll just go to the store. Let's get some more. <laughs> and they're like, the store isn't open. And I'm like, what? And, and they said, the store isn't open. This is in the 70s. I mean, even in America, stores were open. And I said, well, yes. well, there must be. Where's your nearest 24-hour supermarket? And they're like, what? <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, I, was, I really thought they were teasing me. and Because I, I didn't mm. believe it. This is how, talk about a culture shock. I was like, no. I so didn't believe them that I said, I'm phoning the police and I'm going to ask them. <laughs> not, not the emergency number. I phoned the police station. It yeah. was in North London. I phoned the local police station because I thought if anyone knows where the 24-hour supermarket is, it's going to be them, right? <laughs> oh, my God. They were wetting themselves down the phone. <laughs> but they did confirm, and I had to believe them, mm. that there was not such a thing as a 24-hour supermarket. No. It's still shut at well, five thirty. Yeah, sometimes, right. sometimes they stayed open late to seven. Sometimes the corner shop would be open a mm. bit later to seven. But I thought, how do people shop after work? Uh, I mean, it's very different now, of course. But it was really hard to get used to that, or to even <laughs> believe it. Yes, and Sundays, oh, just nothing. Forget it. <laughs> and I say that I thought they were teasing me because that was another thing that was hard to get used to: is the British humor mm. in interpersonal relationships. Because I really liked these people. They were so fun and creative and smart. It was just really a fun time. But at one point, they started being like quite mean to me. And it kind of upset me. And I'm from California, so I'm like, I'm going to like have it out with them. Because they can't, they really shouldn't be treating me like this. So I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to them. And I said I really need to talk to you guys. It's because like I just don't appreciate the way you're treating me. You're being really mean to me, and you say mean things. And frankly, it hurts my feelings. And they were astonished. Yes. And they said, "We do that because we like you." Uh. And I'm like, "What?" And they're like, "If we didn't like you, we'd be really polite to you." And, yes. You know, I did understand that it's a kind of, I guess they call it banter nowadays, but it's a kind of teasing that went on that would, could be quite cutting. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I really like it, and and I'm used to it, and probably do it too much myself. But it's that took some getting used to. Yes, it does. And in fact, you can be quite cruel the other way around. I spent time in America and reacted, well, effusively to anybody who said to me, have a nice day, <laughs> because I found it amusing. Right. So if they said, have a nice day, I'd say, oh, very kind of you. What a lovely thing to say. We don't really even know each other, do we? But oh, how thoughtful of you. And I hope you have a really, really lovely day yourself. I bet they loved it, Mike. They loved your accent. Mm. I bet they said, oh, or your accent. <laughs> <laughs> they did a bit, but of quite often people stared at me as if I was slightly mad. <laughs> that is a slightly <laughs> mad thing to do. I, and I do have to say, when I go back to America, when I went back to America, I think it was after my father had died. And I remember when that kind of effusiveness from a cashier and she went, and how are you today? And I burst into tears because she <gasps> seemed to, to really mean it. And, and, yes. and I wasn't used to the form, you know, I mean, they do mean it. This is the thing with Americans. They are sincere. They genuinely, yeah. They're working. They may not be able to get into it with you, but they genuinely do want you to have a nice day. And mm. there's a kind of, or at least was, America is different now, perhaps. I haven't lived there in a long time, but it used to be there was a kind of a, a pleasant innocence 
about those kind of exchanges. Yes. That was, and it was sincere. Yeah, no, I think it's true. I think that whole thing of you should come around and, you know, visit sometime. Mm-hmm. They mean it. Yeah. Come stay. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. I know. Really? In England, that's the thing you say to people when you're just being nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're ever in, in our area, you should pop yes. round and you know, stay. We'd love to have you. Oh, my God. And you know that yes. means don't ever do that. Well, I know, but you mustn't say that to an American. And I've got <laughs> I've got quite used to the British way of saying things. I remember I had this ghastly – it was in New York, and it was it was like an Airbnb or so, one of those situations where I was renting a, a flat, and they changed it at the last minute to this ghastly hellhole that I couldn't – and I just left. And I – oh, no, when they changed it, I said – he said, I could send you photographs of the new place – and I said, um, if it wouldn't be too much trouble. <laughs> and he never did because he heard, actually, it is kind of trouble. I don't think I will. Whereas any English person would know that meant you send them by return to this email immediately. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it, yes. it is speaking like speaking two languages. Yes. I have to adapt. The ability to say to someone, how dare you walk in front of me by saying no after you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, as far as I'm concerned, you're English. Well, thank you. And we're delighted to have you. I'm delighted to be here. I've been very happy in this country. What a lovely time I've had talking to you. Oh, Mike, it's been so great. It's been really moving at times, I have to say, and I feel for you in all those situations. But thank you. Your spirit shines through. Oh, bless you, Mike. That's very kind. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens. And my guest, Lorelai King. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed yourself, then there are lots of other episodes available and many more to come. So please do subscribe and we'll keep you posted. Before you move on, please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you've chosen to listen to us on. And if you want to see what we're up to and what's coming up, why not follow us on Twitter and or Instagram and maybe befriend us on Facebook. Yep, they both sound a little bit creepy, don't they? But I promise you it's all above board. And you can listen to the theme tune on Spotify if you search its composer and performer, Pass the Peas Music. You may even find other things by that talented creative. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and our producer was, as always, John Fenton Stevens. Right, love and kisses to you all from me and John, and we hope you'll find time to join us again soon and maybe tell your friends about us. I mean, it's always helpful when listeners join in our publicity. Like our lovely listener, Jack. Yeah, you know Jack. He's also useful when you need to change a tyre. And there's the lady with one leg shorter than the other, Eileen. Matt, who I discovered lying on the floor just inside my front door. And, of course, the lovely Roland. I'm not sure what his second name is, but I suspect, for the purposes of this purportedly humorous section of my inane rambling at the end, Roland may well have the surname Butter. Of course he does. But don't spread it. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.